Hello and welcome to Ecology and Me. Bonus round. We're back with historical marine ecologist, Carolyn Hall. We spoke to Carolyn about the toxins in our water, but there was so much more to talk about. So let's dive right in. The first question we have is actually from my lovely and sweet boyfriend, Zephan, in upstate New York. My question is, where does beach foam come from on a lake? I had, I had often wondered that myself. And when I was a kid, I used to think it went, the water was dirty. It's not dirty. It's actually the opposite. Natural sea foam or beach foam is actually from the organic and inorganic matter, the particles that are stirring up in an in a active ecosystem, an active aquatic ecosystem. So they sort of froth up as they hit, you know, as the waves are coming in and they're hitting the, and they're hitting the sediment. So they turn into surf and they create like this natural froth. It could be plants, algae, minerals, all these things. They create this foam. So the, the water stirs up all these dead and living things, particles into a nice little froth and then puts it on the side. It's, I guess it's like, think of an egg white. You froth an egg white. There is one form of sea foam that, that is something to be careful of. If there's been a toxic algal bloom offshore, when there are a lot of nutrients in the water and the water's warm, algae likes to grow. You've probably seen algae on ponds, like the green, call it the green scum, but actually they're plants and it's, it's natural. But when you have conditions that lead to overgrowth, then, and there are certain algae that are that actually have toxic properties, toxic chemicals. So when they decay and die, they get added to this mix of things that create foam. And then that foam can actually be not good for you. I read that I think that if dogs go swimming in the water, it can harm them. Yeah, with a toxic, yes. A toxic algae bloom. Yeah, yeah, that's, and they're happening, happening more regularly because waters are warmer and there are more over-nutriented waters. In case you were wondering, the largest algae bloom in the world is called the Great Atlantic Sargassum Belt. Sargassum is a stringy brown seaweed that floats around for its whole life. In the open ocean, it serves as a feeding and breeding ground for various marine creatures, but too much of it can smother corals, seagrasses, and end up on beaches. Apparently, it releases a gas that smells like rotten eggs. Oh boy. So an algae bloom of it, not a good thing. And get this, at its peak, the Great Atlantic Sargassum Belt was twice the width of the United States. Gulp. Moving on from algae blooms, next up is a question from friend of the show, Silver in New York. I recently read an article in the New York Times called, Can Listening to the Deep Sea Help Save It? And I second that question with, what does a healthy habitat sound like? And has COVID helped us learn about that? This connects back for me to that, that global conveyor belt of water and this idea that traveling along the bottom of all our seas are these, are these waters that have been on the surface and now they're on the bottom and they're sort of combing the bottom. So they're collecting like this, again, like this history, they're sort of recording time. And I love that idea. And so what can the, what can that history tell us? Also, 
the sediments of the deep sea, there's a lot of history in what, what gets collected. And the deep sea isn't as extracted or exploited as a lot of shallower areas are. So if we could listen to what's collected at the bottom of the deep sea, I'm using listening in terms of discovering other ways of finding out what it could tell us. So scientifically or... Well, the other things about the deep sea that, that fascinates me is that it's oxygenless and it's lightless, like the really, really deep sea. So no one can hear you scream. Basically. <laughs> yes. And <laughs> okay. <laughs> but they, can, they can't see you scream, that's for sure. According to the New York Times article Silver mentioned, sound travels five times faster underwater than in air. So in the deep sea, you definitely couldn't see anything but you could hear sounds from hundreds of miles away. Pretty wild, right? There's still a lot of life down there that's living in other ways, like that's using methane or that's using other ways of creating, that's living off of other gases, that's living off of other chemical reactions that create life. And I love the idea of what of listening to those organisms that live down there. So those organisms that, and those communities that live down there, they're, on, they're, they're in a delicate balance because of what they have available for them to live on. And so I'm wondering if they're a little bit like the last canary in the coal mine, that if we start to see those deep sea communities blink out, have we gone too far? Coral has been talking to us for a long, long time about what we've been doing to the oceans. It also took us a long time to actually listen. But in terms of COVID, yes, what you're talking about with um, sound and and healthy habitat, I would love to ask your friend what she, what she thinks about that, because I'm wondering if she's been going to waterfronts and, and listening differently. I certainly was. Often in an urban environment, you can't hear the small, quiet things. But in the early part of COVID, when airplanes you know, there are so few airplanes. There was actually so few traffic except for ambulances. There was a, a hush to the city. Also, there was no people going out at night. There weren't, bar- you know, like the, all the sounds that we're so used to, the, the noise pollution was reduced. And so you could go to a waterfront and you could hear, you could hear the plants sort of brushing up against each other. You could hear the tiny little waves. You could hear all the birds. You could hear, even if you were really, really quiet, you know, you could hear like the scraping of a crab, right? You could hear those things. And to me, that's a healthy habitat. Like all those organic and natural forces have all their sounds. They're just often too quiet that we, we bury them in our sounds. And I would say one of the key things for noticing a healthy aquatic Habitat is listening for birds, birds that eat fish and birds that eat invertebrates from the water. Because if they're there, you have a healthy system. Okay, our next question comes from Julia in New York. What is acid rain? I feel like I've heard that or learned that phrase in school. And I think it's something with pollution, but is it real? And does it still exist? Acid rain is real. Acid rain is real. And it was a huge problem in North America and Europe in the, I guess, started in the 60s, but 70s 
and into the 80s. Acid rain. Okay, I had to look it up to get all the chemicals to know what was what it was. But rain becomes acidic whenever it contains acidic com- components that are made when the water in the atmosphere chemically reacts with sulfur dioxide or nitrogen oxide. Now, sulfur dioxide and nitrogen oxide are two major components that are released when we burn fossil fuels. Do those come from volcanoes too? Yes, they do. So they can be naturally occurring. They can also come from when plant matter decays. Like they, they are natural compounds, which fossil fuels come from organic organisms. The problem is when it's emitted in such an amount and then there is a ton of it in the atmosphere, it reacts with water and becomes acidic compounds that then rain out or snow out or even settle out as dust. We can have acid snow? Yeah. And then when that acidic precipitation or dust collects in our water, in our soils, in our plants, it actually is, it can be lethal. So it can kill fish. It can kill plants. Is it something we would know it's acid when it's coming down? Like if I was out dancing in the rain, as I am, you know. Upon occasion, yes. Want to do. (laughs) Upon occasion, I will go out and dance uh, naked in the rain. Will I feel it on my skin? I don't know. I guess if it's it's a very high concentration, perhaps. But I don't know. I can't answer that question. So I did a little more research on this. According to the EPA, swimming in an acidic lake or walking in an acidic puddle isn't any different to swimming or walking in clean water. So I presume dancing in the rain would be okay too? Is acid rain happening every day? Just all, it's very common or is it less, or is it only in certain areas? Well, so in terms of the Northern, the North America and Europe, um, there have been air pollutant regulations, clean air, yay. So so those have put limits on how many of these pollutants can be emitted by industries that release them and burn them, right? Like, so on cars or on um, oil refineries and such like that. Also, we burn a lot less coal and coal was a big culprit. But there are other countries that maybe weren't using fossil fuels as much and are using them more now. And the regulations aren't up to the same level that we had to create. And those that happens a lot in Asia and in India. So they're still getting, they are, they are getting acid rain. Okay. On to another question from Julia. What is the difference between hard and soft water? I only know about in terms of bagels. You know, bagels are great because they have are made with hard water. <laughs> right. Hard water has minerals. Oh, that we add or that it, it just naturally has? Naturally, like calcium and magnesium. So New York water comes from a mineral-rich source. I mean, wild waters are generally mineral-rich because they ha- contain the erosions from rocks and soils around them. Soft water is treated to remove the minerals, but often has a higher level of sodium. I think they use sodium ions to remove some of the minerals. This is, again, not my area of expertise. Well, but why would you want to do that? I guess, why would you want soft water or hard water? Hard water sounds like great. 
Yeah, there's, there, so there is nothing wrong with hard water. There is nothing wrong with having minerals in your water. Um, the I don't know if you've ever seen like a tap that has like a little white crust of minerals around. Yeah, that's from hard water. So there are some things about the minerals. You can get more of those deposits, like that deposit can build up and actually can be an issue in the pipes. Some people who have more sensitive skin, uh, it can dry out your skin. Um, if you have eczema, it can be hard on your skin. Also, because of the minerals, uh, with, with soap, it's a little hard to wa- harder to wash off. Like you have to actually, you have to actually like wash a little longer to get that stuff off. So that's why people soften it. And also I think, you know, things rinse cleaner and like in your, when you're washing glass, you don't see spots. Like you often hear about the hard water spots. Okay. So hard water, harder to clean, but good for bagels. Does this mean bagels are good for us because of all the minerals? I hope so. Okay, next up, we have two amazing questions from Ty in New York. What would happen if all the ocean water turned into fresh water? So my, I wrote four sentences in immediate reaction. I wrote, we would lose much of the base of our food web. So many unique species cannot survive in fresh water. One of the main sources of oxygen would be gone. And one of the main sources of cal- carb- carbon dioxide uptake would be gone. We'd, it'd be bad. Bad so. news, it sounds like. <laughs> I mean, we'd have more water to drink. <laughs> and that is a problem. Fresh water is definitely a problem these days. But, um, you know, the, the salt water on our planet, the, I said the base of the food web. So there's this thing called primary production. And that is that is like the tiny, the, the like the the base of what everybody eats and it could be single or, or just a few cell organisms, planktons and such like that. The ocean is responsible for half of that production. So we change to fresh water. It is dependent upon the chemical existence of salt water for that production. We would have more fresh water primary production, but it would not be the same. Also, just for me, like so many species need salt water to live. Like they have evolved to live in salt water and we would lose so many from whales to these tiny little algae. Then oxygen, ocean plants are also responsible for 50%, 50 or more percent of the oxygen we breathe. So there's, there's photosynthesis in the ocean and it can be from plant plants or it can like what we see as plants. And it could also can be from like tiny little single or few celled animals that are constantly taking up carbon dioxide and creating oxygen, phytoplankton. And so the flip side of that, in order for some of these plants to make oxygen, they need carbon dioxide, which we're making plenty of these days. So yes, they take up carbon dioxide to photosynthesize and create oxygen. However, the ocean itself, because of the chemical makeup of the ocean, including the salt, the ocean surface takes up carbon dioxide. The ocean takes up a quarter to a third of our emissions. Freshwater does take up some, but not nearly as much. So we change that chemistry, then our atmosphere gets a faster accumulation of carbon dioxide. And then you imagine what we're doing with climate change and global warming. And of course, I want to go back to the global conveyor belt. Part of the reason why the ocean turns over is because of salt. Warm water can hold more salt 
but then when it travels up to where it's cold, it gets heavy and it sinks. And if we didn't have salt water, we wouldn't have that turnover of the oceans, which means that the surface of the ocean would get warmer and warmer. Weather changes would happen because the weather interacting with warm water creates more storms. Okay, so keep the salt in the oceans. Thank you. Now our last question is also from Ty. What creatures can survive both in water and in the air? And what do those creatures, what wisdom do those creatures have for us about our lives and our histories and our futures? I, this is much more of a philosophical question. There is a, there is a, there is a science-based question. So there's a narrow band of certain creatures that can sort of breathe both water and air, salamanders and lungfish, some crabs, eels can live for short times above on land. They, they actually sometimes have to migrate from one part of a water body to another over land. And then we get to amphibians in general, like frogs and toads and newts and the breathing. So it's interesting because it's all about oxygen. So lungs help us get oxygen from the air. Gills help creatures get oxygen from water. And it's just a different structural chemical process. So that's the scientific answer. And some creatures can breathe through their skin, which I also am like, what? That's fascinating to me. would love that special skill. That's my new superpower. Well, right. So then that makes me think about that, right? We're thinking about like what wisdom is there? What, what about history and future? So history... And I, I was looking this up last night because I started to think like evolutionarily. And if I'm looking at the evolutionary tree correctly, amphibians evolved. From amphibians came reptiles. From reptiles came birds and mammals. So amphibians, these like water, air, water, air creatures are our ancestors. I mean, long time ago, <laughs> ancestors. I mean, the wisdom is like, what, do, what is that? What are those ancient adaptations that are held, right? In these bodies that took so many forms in order to keep evolving as our planet was changing and the conditions of our planet was changing and to be able to walk on land out of water and to be able to go back into water from land. Like that, that elasticity, that adaptation, that flexibility that isn't even um, conscious, right? When I'm thinking about amphibians and the fact that they're like this base of this huge evolutionary tree and they still exist today, like they've played a long game. They weren't thinking short-term, whether they were thinking, like amphibians are not a short-term category. And when I think of wisdom and future and we humans for capitalism, for profit, think about such short-term gains or goals or solutions. Yeah, we need, we need to extend our game. So to all you listeners out there, maybe we can practice thinking in amphibian time or tree time or whale time. I don't know, we might learn something. Another big thank you to Carolyn Hall and thank you listeners for being here and supporting the show. It means the world. I'm Kate Douglas. Keep asking questions. 